Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, we have had a new exciting rebrand. You may have noticed, we are now the History Hit Warfare Podcast. With me, as per usual, your host, James Rogers, but we've got a new exciting broader focus. Each week, three times a week, we're going to bring you episodes on the First and Second World War as per usual, but we now touch on even more secret conflicts of the Cold War, the hidden aspects of the War on Terror, and everything warfare from our recent history. So stay tuned and be sure to like, follow, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For this episode, I've dug back through the History Hit archives to handpick one from the Chalk Valley History Hit. This is with the brilliant James Holland, so you already know it's going to be fascinating. It concerns what happened to the families of high-profile Nazis after the Second World War. To find out all this, James spoke with the great-niece of Heinrich Himmler, Katrin Himmler. Himmler was, of course, the head of the dreaded SS, the second most powerful man after Adolf Hitler and the architect of the Holocaust. And so this is a uniquely moving episode. Katrin is both honest and revealing in what she says, and personally I found this to be an incredibly sobering talk. Thank you, Katrin, very, very much for coming. I know it must seem seem incredibly overwhelming coming to this rather mad corner of of, of <laughs> southwest England and the first thing you see is sort of you know a, a lineup of of British Second World War twenty five pounders and a hurricane and, uh, and we've just been down talking to the Vikings and had a chat with a gladiator and, and all sorts of stuff and uh, I know it is all a bit odd but anyway but thank you very much for coming and um, and let's just start with the Himmler brothers uh, and 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 how they were different. How they were different, yes, um, different compared characters. to Heinrich yes. Himmler or in between. You yes. mean now. Um, well, maybe I start with my grandfather, who was the youngest brother of Heinrich Himmler. They have been three brothers. Heinrich was the one in the middle. And my grandfather is the youngest. I was always told about him that he was not political, no Nazi, no convinced Nazi, that he was making career based on the good relationship to his brother Heinrich, of course, that he didn't have any scruple to do it, but um, that he was just a technician, an engineer, the broadcasting, the Reich broadcasting in Berlin, but didn't have to do anything with, with Nazi. And um, this was something I, when I started to do my research many years ago, I found out that there was not so much truth about that, that he was a very convinced Nazi as well, exactly like the elder brother, exactly like, I, the deeper I was getting into it, the clearer it was becoming that there was nobody around in the whole family who was not a convinced Nazi. The women, the men, and most of them entering the party, party even before 1933. And do you think that is entirely down to the influence of Heinrich, or... Do you think there's other factors involved? This is what parts of the family used to tell me, that it was all influenced by Heinrich or that he was setting other family members under pressure, forced them to enter the party, for example, the parents. Um, because I also found out quite lately that um, the parents were entering the party end of 1933 when they were very old already. 
Um, and then I told it to those relatives, a cousin of my father, um, what I found there, the documents, and they said, well, this must have been Heinrich who forced them to enter the party, which is certainly not true, I guess, because I found um, provals that they have been convinced Nazis already in the end of the 20s. But this is something I found out only recently for the research, due to the researches I was doing for my last book. <laughs> only then it was right. getting clear. Uh, and, and how easy is it to research this in Germany? Um, well, if you're dealing with a perpetrator who is so well known and who was so powerful like Heinrich Himmler, it's quite easy, of course, to find a lot of documents, a lot of provals, because you have a lot of stuff in the archives, in the federal archives mainly, but also many other archives. So this was quite easy, but already to find out more than the party membership and the membership of SS um, of my grandfather, there was not much more than that. It was a file which was thin like that. And after that, it became very complicated to find out more. It was really hard to dig and, and to think about where I could go to. I had to read mountains of files about the broadcasting in order to understand what he was doing, what he was um, responsible for, as I had no idea before. So this was quite difficult. And I was going to the place where they were living talking to people there, getting into um, the smaller archives, documenting who was living there, or address books from Berlin, where you could see in the former time they were writing not only the names and the phone numbers and the address, but also the professions the people had, or if they were party members or which function they had was great from the Nazi time. So you could um, follow the history, how it was changing the neighborhood around of, of my grandparents. Yeah, so go, just let's just explain, talk a little bit about the Himmler family. I mean, I mean, your great grandparents. I mean, where, where are they from, and, and what's their background? Mm -hmm. um, my great grandparents, um, they were from Munich or the area around. They were living there and um, bringing up their three sons in Munich. My great grandfather was a teacher of Latin and Greek. And later he was a, um, I would say, headmaster of school. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. A headmaster of, um, of school for many years. And um, so it was a background of um, being very well educated. It was very important for the parents to give anything they could for their kids, to, to give them as much education as possible and to... Um, to show them around, to travel and, and, and make cultural programs. So they really tried their best. But on the other side, it was a very traditional education as well, which was very strict, very, um, very militaristic as well. And this mm -hmm. time in Germany, of course, before the First World War. So it was very, very conservative and very monarchistic um, in this time. Yeah. So they were, you know, so they, they were nationalists, really. Nationalistic, yeah, exactly. And there's three brothers. There's the, the three brothers. Yes. The, the Heinrich's the middle. The oldest is? Gebhardt is the mm -hmm. eldest one. The same name like the father, the eldest. And is it, it's the only, the oldest one who fights in the First World War, is that correct? Yes, exactly. The first one was um, still... Um, going to the First World War as a, as a soldier. Um, Heinrich was trying as well. He, wanted, he was very keen on becoming a soldier like most of the young boys and teenagers in that time, of course. But um, he was too young or the war was ending too early. So he was always um, um, frustrated afterwards that he wasn't able to fight and to defend his fatherland. It, it was something like he was always trying to compensate after the First World War in order to fight. He was, he was together with his older brother. They were fighting against um, the first German democracy, the Weimar Republic, mm -hmm. in um, these Freikorps organizations. So they were, yes, but how did that come? I mean, how did they go from being sort of good nationalists, monarchists, the war ends? What set them on that path of... of fighting against the Weimar and, and being, becoming radicalized um, in some way? I think it has to do with the, 
one one um, uh, point may be that the family was losing almost everything. Their status they ha they had before they were very much connected to the um, to the nobility in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. They had personal contacts because my great grandfather was a person a private teacher of one uh, prince of mm -hmm. the Bavarian line. Um, so they had very good contacts, and it was very important for their status they had in, in the society, you know. And, and they were uh, quite wealthy, not rich, but quite wealthy. And they lost everything because, as most people in the First World War, they were signing these war papers and losing everything. So they had nothing afterwards. It was this feeling that most... Um, People, most Germans had after the First World War that they um, felt humiliated by the contract of Versailles. They had this feeling of there was this big promise of Germany could be something very important in the world, play an important role in the world, and then they lost everything. And it was a very humiliating situation, and they were not. I mean, they were not used to democracy in Germany. They didn't have any experience with it. It was completely new and something that they didn't choose it, no? It just came to them. They were forced to. Yeah. But it's, so it's, it's in part, it's the kind of sort of the humiliation at the end of the, of the war, but it's also a personal humiliation and that they're losing their status, losing their own personal yeah, wealth as well. Exactly. And, and I suppose if you're a young man, then you get angry and you channel that anger. Yeah, yeah. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, and for them it was personally, it was a difficult situation because um, it was always clear before the First World War that they would make a career, they would study, they would become doctors, maybe even this was the wish of the father at least, and then everything was unsafe and unclear. It was, they were quite poor and, and it was very difficult for them to get along. So there was a big, big personal frustration as well. In that time, and so that's and, and then Heinrich Himmler then joins the Nazi Party. Um, eventually, rises very quickly to be yeah. head of the SS. I think yeah. in 1929. 29, yes. Uh, mm. And so the rest of the family are kind of swept along in this in his own advancement. I mean, is that what is that what is happening? Do you it think? took me a long time to find it out because. Um, I mean, I was always told that the grand-grandparents, they were nationalistic, they were monarchists, they were Catholics, so there was no logical reason for them to, be, to have any addiction to the Nazi party. Um, and then when I started the research in the archives, I found letters um, between the parents and Heinrich Himmler starting only at the beginning um, of 1933. So, there must have been letters before, but they are missing until nowadays. I didn't find any. And in these letters, it was very clear that they were convinced Nazis, that the, they were very enthusiastic about um, the Nazis getting to power. But I didn't know when it started, when right. they changed their mind. So this I found only, uh, I found out only when these private documents of Himmler appeared in Israel some years ago. And um, they were showing clearly in the letters from Heinrich Himmler, he was writing to his wife, Marga, that he was telling her, my mother was in 27, in, in summer, no, uh, autumn 27, he told her, well, my mother just comes from a rally from, from Hitler in Munich, and she was so enthusiastic about what he was speaking. It was really great for her, and no? she loved it. So 27, this was completely contrary to anything I was told in the family and anybody supposed to. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can understand why a family might want to sort of keep that a little bit... Yeah, sure. Quiet, <laughs> of course. I suppose. I mean, yeah. it is fascinating, isn't it, to think that you, you always think about the individuals, but all these individuals do have families. Yeah. You know, the leading Nazis, whether exactly. it be... Hess or Goering or, 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 or Himmler. Yeah. And it's kind of... You're, you're, I mean, presumably you got the sense that the whole family is being swept along with Heinrich's own advancement. Mm. But do, he's the one who's pushing this. He's the one who's leading it, pushing his family into it. Or do you think, think the family, his own parents, are coming into it independently? Um, it's difficult to say. I think it's both, maybe. Um, I mean, Heinrich... 
you can see a big difference between Heinrich and the rest of the family um, because he was one who was always very consequent and he was the most idealistic. He was the first one who entered the Nazi party mm -hmm. as a student in the early 20s and he always stayed with this party, fighting for them. He was working for them in the 20s and he was hardly earning enough money for living. It was a very difficult time and probably it was a time in the 20s when the rest of the family uh, found it quite embarrassing what he was doing because he was not following the path that was planned for him, making career, being settled well like the rest of the family did. So he was much more idealistic. And the other ones, the rest of the family was much more opportunistic. There in the times after the first war, no, after the Hitler putsch, Yes. They were taking, the eldest brother was taking part in the Hitler Putsch together with Heinrich still. And after that, he was making his career. He was not um, active politically anymore and only came back to policy when it was opportune to do it at the end of the 20s when they're when getting the more and more on the rise. Exactly. I mean, because only then you see they were coming back, all of them. Yeah, because it's easy to forget that yeah. in the second half of the 1920s, you know, Germany was sort of recovering and it was becoming a liberal democratic place. It was forging its future on manufacturing and yeah. industry. And it sort of looked things that reasonably optimistic. Then came the Wall Street crash. Mm. The loans from the USA dry up. Um, depression hits Germany as well. And the alternative to liberal democracy is extreme nationalism and yes. the National Socialists. Yeah. And, and it is amazing, isn't it, the, the, the way the Nazis grip power from 1933 onwards mm -hmm. and how the whole the vast majority of the nation are just swept up in the whole euphoria of this Well, change. not from the beginning. I mean, they didn't have a majority, not at all, at the beginning when they became the power in 33. No, There was still... The majority of Germans were still skeptical and not voting for them, although they had arrested most of the members um, and, and the deputies of, um, of the communist and the socialist democratic parties. So there was no, no more opposition. But nevertheless, um, they didn't have um, the majority of the votes in that time. It came only, only later. And I think the support of the broad majority of Germans it came slowly during the next years when the unemployment was getting down yes. rapidly. Then the people were more and more convinced and, and, and trusting in the regime. And they were really getting enthusiastic about when, uh, in the time when the World War started and the Germans were conquering one country after the other. Then, then the people were really enthusiastic about, no? about yeah, this feeling of we are conquering the world, it felt, I think, for many of them, it just felt great. This, this um, I don't know the right expression of this in English. Yes, yeah, so they're swept along in this kind of euphoria because yeah. Hitler is taking back all these German-speaking lands without a shot being fired. And then mm. even once the war does begin, you know, Poland is rolled over pretty quickly. Yeah. Then, the, you know, then Denmark, then Norway, and then the biggest miracle of all, France, mm. you know, which mm. is seen as a kind of you know, global yes. superpower of the time, mm. just sort of swept aside yeah. in six weeks. You absolutely can see that. And it is fascinating reading diaries and letters of ordinary yes. Germans in that period. I mean, yeah, there's one true. period in the, in the autumn of, of, of uh, September of 1940 where it's a really lovely late summer mm -hmm. and people are talking about Führer weather, yeah. you know, because mm. it's so sunny. You know, he's become this kind of sort of godlike figure that mm. seems mm. to even have control of the weather as well as yeah. victories. And Everything seems possible in that time, no? Mm. Yeah. And yet yeah. there is this extraordinary ideology and Heinrich Himmler is absolutely swept up in all of this. I mean, you know, from, from good Catholic stock, he then dismisses the Catholic Church and starts going into this Volkish stuff and all the... Well, not, not really, not really. He was always doing it ambiguously <laughs> at once. He was, he was um, um, leaving the church very lately, only in 36. That's interesting. It was just after his father was dying, only then. So you was, think his parents have to, his father has to go before he it's can... It's not really clear, but you could 
supposed that he was waiting until that time because he knew very well how important it was for his parents, especially for the mother, um, to be that connected. She was very Catholic. The father not that much. It was more mm -hmm. the mother. But he was the latest of the brother who was um, leaving the church, I think. So he was always talking in speeches to the, his SS men, the SS officers, that they should get out of the church and just be this um, uh, Gottgläubig. They had this expression. I don't know how you can translate it. Um, so they were still saying that we are believing in God. Um, they were not um, atheists. Not at all, but um, outside of the church and very much connected to this um, strange pseudo-Germanic rituals he was Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he really was, gets into all that, yeah, doesn't he? He was really crazy for that, for these rituals. And you know, he this was, is the kind of sort of Atlantis myths and yeah. the origins of the Aryan people. Yeah. And, and, you know, he set up the Arnanaba and, and all these different mm. sort of, um, which had sort of really high-ranking academics and, yes. and scholars yeah. involved in it, searching for the origins of the kind of, you know, the original mm. men, mm. you know, who he absolutely was convinced were Aryans and North Europeans. And, yes, yes. And, and it's creating a myth to go with the nationalism, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's never, I've never quite understood how, you know, how much he genuinely, genuinely yeah. believed it or how much it was just a conceit to kind of back up what you're trying to do. Yeah, this was a special thing of Heinrich Himmel, I guess. He was very um, enthusiastic about this. And um, he was also... Um, I mean, he was also seeing himself, it seems at least, like he was seeing himself like a sort of reincarnation of this old King Heinrich living yes. a thousand years before, which is really weird. Um, the people around him, the inner circle, also was very, very much believing in it, it seems. It seems so weird if you see it from nowadays how they could believe in it. <laughs> but it's, yes, uh, Heinrich the Fowler. It's a strange thing, yeah. And I think my grandparents were also very connected to this esoteric stuff of uh, they had a very strong esoteric connection to all this Germanic stuff and historic pseudo-historical <laughs> yes quasi -historical. yeah quasi quasi you say quasi -historical. I mean it is bizarre because I mean you know for, for his SS I mean he also you know, he, he sort of takes from all sorts of different other cultures and, and countries, yes. different parts of heritage, myth. So, mm. you know, he creates a round table, for example, which mm. is obviously plundered from King Arthur and yes. French tales and all the yeah, rest of it. Yeah, in the Wittelsburg, sort of, in this yeah. castle. And this yeah, is Weber's castle, which is, you know, was bought and set up as a kind of sort of yeah. SS headquarters and was filled with runes and all sorts uh, of weird bulkish stuff and symbols, including symbols. this vast round table. Yeah. Yeah, it was stealing a lot of the idea of King Arthur and his round table. It was um, <laughs> very much very a bizarre. copy. Very bizarre. <laughs> but, but, but your grandfather, although he's buying into it, he's having quite a quiet war. He's working for yes. in the in the in the in the film industry and in a in, in news industry in Berlin. Yes, in the broadcast. Well, he was the chief engineer in the last years of the war for the broadcast. So we had to travel around a lot to the different broadcasting stations all over the Reich to um, be in contact with them. And um, yes, that's what he was doing. And that's why it was important enough that he didn't have to go to war. He never had to fight in the war as a soldier. Only in the recent weeks, in the last weeks of the war, he was had to go to the Volkssturm. Oh, did he? To, yeah, in the last week still. They were taking everybody, all the youngsters, all and being, the elders. And being Himmler's brother is... No didn't protection. help him at that time. He was. They tried to to get him um, to go to the front several times before. Already, I found documents in the archive proving that they tried it again. But he always managed to stay in Berlin <laughs> until the end, until the last weeks. And then, in the last weeks, everybody who hasn't been in the war until then had to fight to defend his proper working place which was, of course, completely senseless. But um, as he never had a gun in his hands before, he didn't know what to do there. And um, yeah, it seems like he was um, or he was dying in these last fights or when he tried to get out of the cattle, when, when Berlin was enclosed by the Russians already, it seems like he was trying to get out um, of the town. and Or he was shot 
on his way or he was um, suiciding himself. It's not clear. We don't know it. <clears throat> and what about the older brother? The older brother, um, as he was also member, active member in the SS, also in the Waffen SS, he was um, in an internation camp, you say, mm -hmm. internation camp for three years in different camps. Um, then he was denazificated. You say that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it, uh, he was in the category of those who uh, were losing their property, uh, weren't allowed to um, work, and were not getting their pensions at least for the first years, but he was fighting for it. And in the 50s, like most of them, he was getting his money back, his pension. So he was rehabilitated again. And what happened to him in the end? Um, well, he was, um, he was unemployed for several years after the war. It was quite difficult for this family to, um, to get along in the years after the war. But then in the end, he had a quite badly paid job. He was quite old already. He was on the 55, something like that already. Right. So, um, yeah, he had some work again, but I think the most important was that he was getting his pension from the time when he was working as a teacher, as a headmaster of a, um, of a technical school. And then the last years during the war, he was in the Ministry of Education in Berlin. So all this pension of this time, he was getting it in the end. So they had quite a good life in the last years. Uh, and what about you and, and growing up? I mean, wh when did you first become conscious of <laughs> the family name and what that meant? It's difficult to say because um, I always knew about, as my father always was telling us from the beginning, um, that we are related to Heinrich Himmler and how, and that he was a horrible criminal. So it was never secret in my family, but okay. um, of course I didn't really understand as a child what, is, what it meant. And the first time I really understood a bit better was when I saw this mini-serial um, Holocaust in 1979-80, it was in that time, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, the US serial, you know what, I'm, mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, this was quite important, the serial in Germany, I guess, because it was... The first time it, it was sown by many, many people, by the a majority of people almost. And this was really the first time that Germans started to think about um, the victims, mm -hmm. about all the Holocaust um, victims and the other people that have been persecuted. And they started to feel empathy with the victims. This was really a big change. I mean, it was a very much a Hollywood uh, movie, but it was touching so many people. It helped much more than any documentaries that we have until mm. then and any education we had. This was much more important. And for me, it was the moment I was seeing, I was only 10 or 11 when I saw it, 11, I think. So uh, quite young. But um, for me, it was the moment when I really started to understand what Heinrich Himmler was responsible for and how close he was to us, how, how heavy this burden really was that we were carrying in the family. And this was the moment when I started to read anything I could get about the subject. I never stopped since then reading and trying to find all sort of books about it. But, but what is driving that? Is it, is it a, a kind of a desire to understand or...? or, or? What compels you to... I guess so. Yes, I guess so. And I, I think it has to do with the fact that my father was always trying very hard to find out as much as possible and that he was never able to get really informations because, um, well, his father was not one of these famous persons. So in the years when the archives were still closed for the public until the 90s when they were opened, it was very, very difficult to find out anything about someone who was uh, like this middle rank, not high rank, mm. like my grandfather. And uh, so he always, as a youngster, he was always trying to ask his mother about and find out how close his father was related to Heinrich Himmler, if he was politically active or not. And my grandmother couldn't speak about it. For her, it was too, 
emotional and she just refused completely to tell him anything. So his, he was getting more and more scared about during all the years. He was, was really afraid that there might have been a big secret about his, around his father. And I think in the end for him it was quite a relief when I was doing my research it was bad enough what I found, uh, but I think it was n it was really not that bad as he always imagined in his right. nightmares. So it was really good for him that to just to to know exactly about what he was responsible for, what he was doing, and what he was not doing. This was more important for him. But you can't feel any connection to Heinrich Himmler at all, apart from the shared name. I mean. Um, I think it was. Um, I think this is something that happens in all these families um, connected to these perpetrators. That um, there's always someone who is feeling responsible for taking care of the family and for dealing with the past of the family, and most of the others are not. So I think my father realized very early that it was me who was interested in the stuff and he was providing me with all sorts of book <laughs> books about it and information. My, my sister completely refused very early. She was also seeing this movie, this Holocaust movie, and she immediately decided that she didn't want to deal with that. Isn't and that it interesting, is, though, because it's such yeah, extreme... This, Two such extreme yeah. responses. So yes, but this happens in all these families. Mm. I, I have quite a lot of contacts um, due to my first book I published about my family. Afterwards, I got in contact with a lot of other um, descendants of perpetrators and um, from second or from third generation. And we all are making the same experience. It's mm, always the same. There's always one who is doing the dirty job in the family um, to dig in the past and... All the others, most of the others, um, you just don't know about what they're thinking. Some of them say, oh, it's great that you're doing it, thank you, that I don't have to do it. There are always a few that are um, totally against it, that feel offended. But they the just vast, don't, they want it swept under the carpet, don't they? Yeah, mention. because they say it's nothing for the public, it's private, it should stay in family. And... Um, the vast majority, they're never speaking about. You just don't know what they think about. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. So yeah. who are the other families you've been in touch with? Well, I'm, I'm in uh, good connection with Niklas Frank. We yes. are good friends since a few years, and we sometimes have been on the podium together as well. Late, the latest time was last year in Italy. Mm -hmm. We went there together. It was really good. And um, there was um, some others which are not that well known. I'm in, also in contact or have been in contact with um, the daughter of um, Albert Speer, who is mm. living in Berlin as well, Hilde Schramm. She's, um, yeah, she's also quite old now, uh, from the second generation. And her son, I met her son as well. Sometimes it's their following 
right. meetings with the next generations coming out of these contexts. I mean, and Nicholas is extraordinary in, in his yes, approach. He's written he's very these, special. I mean, for those who don't know, he's written um, <laughs> he's written biographies of his father and uh, and, and, and mother and, and, his and mother brother. And his mother. I mean, it's it's mm. it's. I mean, it's quite extreme. I couldn't it? read it. The one of his mother, I stopped it after a short time. I mean, it's really radical. It's very, a very radical way he's dealing with. We have very different ways of dealing with the past, but um, nevertheless, we are, <laughs> we are having a lot of fun together and very well, good friends. Well, he's an extraordinary and, character. I mean, he, yeah. he absolutely hates with a passion both his parents mm. and... and mm. I mean, he carries a picture about him all the time of his father lying dead after being yeah. hanged at Nuremberg. And that is kept in his wallet yeah. and about his person all the time. He's the most jovial, delightful character you can meet. But, but, but he is very... Yeah. Sure. His mother, I mean, if you, when you talk to Nicholas, I mean, she's even more of a monster than yeah. Hans Frank. I mean, I mean she's really vile. And I mean, she wasn't worse than her husband, of course, but um, it's something that it seems like always, no? That um, these Nazi women seem to be even worse than the men, but of course they haven't been that powerful like their husbands. It, it was a completely different role they had, no? And his, his siblings, he's got an older brother and two sisters, and mm -hmm. one of the sisters emigrated to um, South, South Africa, Africa, where she's very right-wing. Yeah. Um, one sister committed suicide when she was 48 on the anniversary of her father's death in October 1946. She and was even younger. Was she, she always had said that she didn't want to get become older than her father was, was when he was hanged. And she was killing herself exactly right. at the same time. And he was age. only 44 or something, wasn't he, or 45 or something? 45, something like that. And she had a small child at that time. And his older brother it. was reasonably normal, all things you know, yes. considered. Yeah. But, uh, and then you have Martin Bormann Jr., who becomes a Catholic priest. Yeah. And then you have Gudrun Himmler. Himmler's, one of Himmler's daughters, mm. who is still alive and is, you know, still an absolute Nazi, isn't she? Yeah, convinced Nazi. She has always been. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, she, was, she was not only convinced Nazi, she was also very active in different right-wing organizations. She was, um, for example, building up uh, in the 50s, she was building up together with other people the Viking Youth, which is a following organization of the Hitler Youth. And she was bringing up her own two children in this organization and even trying to convince her cousins that they should send her children there as well because it's so nice. They're doing camping in the summer, singing, dancing together, just nice activities very harmless. Um, and she was beside, uh, she was um, very active also together with others in building up an organization called Stille Hilfe, Silent Help, Silent Aid, you say, I think, no? Uh, which was an organization especially for supporting um, men who were condemned as uh, war cr criminals to support their families and them in, in the prison. And now, of course, they don't have any work anymore. There's nobody left. But until maybe 10 years ago, she has been very active and going there to prison, visit them and supporting them also. And you were, you were telling me beforehand that you did meet her once. I must have met her when I was a small child because there is existing a picture where all the cousins were meeting in Munich uh, with all the kids sitting on them. Um, but my parents were so shocked about her and her husband, who were both that um, convinced Nazis, that they broke the contact immediately after that. So there is no contact since then. Hmm. Mm. I mean, it is—it's—it's it's such a different experience. You know, we—you know—we—we we, we commemorate the Second World War. Um, you know, there's more books on the Second World War than any other historical <laughs> subject in this yeah. in this country. Sure. I mean, you've only got to look around here. We've got guns, we've got hurricanes flying overhead, mm. all the rest of it. You know, on we, you know, 11th of November every year, or the closest Sunday is a big thing. It's it's you know Remembrance Sunday, and all the veterans come out. Mm. We pat them on the back. They wear their poppies. Okay. They wear their berries and all the rest of it. You know, Germans have never had that experience. Mm. I mean, how how is 
Germany coping now, do you think? I mean, it's more than 70 years now since the, the Second World War. Um, I mean, I, I guess there are many people outside of Germany that are um, admiring how well Germans are dealing with their past, with the Nazis' past, especially because we are doing so much on it um, in education and documentations, memorials everywhere you go, especially in Berlin. We have a lot of different memorials. And this is, of course, something that is very important. But I think on the other side, what happened is um, what we have missed for many years is to bring together this official history and the official memorizing history together with the private history of the families. This is something that is completely separated until now still. So what happens if um, I'm going to schools quite a lot still in Germany to talk with the pupils about um, my family history. And what happened is they always tell me the same, like in my generation, we are fed up of hearing about the Nazi period again and again and again. They have it three times or four times in their school time, which is definitely too much. They don't get to know anything about the time after the war <laughs> of, the, of the German democracy. That's really a problem that they don't learn much about that. It's just... Many times it's just ending in 45, the history they are teached about. So they're mainly fed up of um, the way the teachers are still teaching them, most of them, not all, but it's mainly the elder generation who are um, trying to tell them what they should feel when they hear about this history. And the pupils tell me, well, we are interested in the history, but we hate the way they are teaching us about. And when I'm going there and talking to them, they're very, very concentrated, very interested. And what happens is, um, I because realize- Because you're personalizing it. Yes, and what I realize is that they're very well informed about the history, but if I ask them, what do you know about your proper family? What have your ancestors been doing in that time? Have they been members of a party? Have they been against re regime? Um, what have they been thinking about it? They have no idea. They don't know anything about that. And this is something that starts only slowly in the recent years that the younger generations start to ask questions um, to the grandparents or sometimes even great-grandparents what they have been doing at that time. And it's, 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 I think it's, it was necessary that so much time was passing because um, they tried it in 68. The second generation was trying the same already, but it was a much more accusing way how they were accusing their parents very much, and you all have been guilty, instead of really asking or wanting to know what they have been doing. No? They were just accusing the whole generation. And now it's very different. And it's, so that generation then, then clams up even more, don't they? Yes. Because they keep it even more internalized. Yeah. I mean, one of the most moving interviews I've ever done with a, uh, with a Second World War veteran was a, a young German soldier and uh, who had fought in the Italian campaign. Mm -hmm. And he just kept breaking down in tears. And I kept saying to him, listen, don't, don't feel you've got to go on. And he was talking about the you know, collapse of the army in Italy and then being captured by partisans and mm -hmm. some Russian troops who'd been fighting for the Germans and were executed. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he said, you know, this happened, the execution of the Russians happened on the 30th of April, 1945. He said, you know, that was the day Hitler shot himself and it was also my 19th birthday. And, and he then oh. was in floods of tears again. Mm. And he kept saying, you know, I want to tell you this, I want to tell you this. And at the end of it, he said... I've never told anybody what I told you. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, having to mm. keep that internalized all yes. these years. I yeah. mean, what a burden that must have been. And you can't blame him. I mean, mm. he was just answering the call. He had no choice. He was conscripted. Of course, you know, he, was he was sent young. off. He was just yeah. doing what he had to yeah. do. Of you course. know, really, really hard. <laughs> I, I, I was profoundly moved by it. And I, I felt really upset mm. on his behalf that, that he was having this incredibly traumatic experience mm. that he'd had to sort of kept, keep to himself all, all that time. And of course, I was a neutral. He, I was yes. sort of, it was a bit like sort of talking to a psychiatrist on the psychiatrist's bed or something. You know, because you could just get it off his chest mm. to a neutral person who was going to disappear out of his life again. And then, yeah, you know, it's gone. Point of it. um, so I, yeah. I understood why I was, I, you know, why he was doing it to me. But it was still really interesting. And I, and I suppose it's, it's, you know, 
the starting point for most people's interest in the Second World War here in this country is the human experience of war. Mm -hmm. It's such a total war. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it affected every man, woman and child living in this country at the time, between yeah. 1939 and But above all in the countries around, I would say. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, but, but, but it still yeah. did. And it's, it, you know, what, how do you, you know, when you're looking back on it, it is that experience of, you know, we've just been hearing... Um, this morning, you know, someone who was a, a glider pilot in Northwest Europe fighting mm. for the British in Second World War in, in 1944 and, mm. you know, landed at Arnhem. It is his own story that we're all really wrapped to hear. Yes. That's what we want to hear. Mm. And yet in Germany, it seems that no one's asking any of these questions. And on Monday, we had three German World War II veterans here and two of okay. them said, you know, would it be OK to put on our Knight's Cross? <laughs> And they said we wouldn't be able to do this in Germany. Okay. It's no, it's difficult, of course. But nevertheless, you have these reunions of old veterans as well. You have a lot of publications of uh, the different parts of the army. And you have um, special bookshops, online bookshops, where you can find a mountain of those things. But I'm, I really don't care much about it. I don't have much idea from that. It's a very special... Um, but I, I suppose what I think is really interesting is, is that the German school children are being taught about the Nazis, but they're not being taught about the experience of the war at all, or it doesn't seem to be. Um, <coughs> less, of course. No, they are not really taught about that. Yeah, this is still difficult. Because, you know, living in a city in, in, in Germany, <laughs> you know, from 1943 to 1945, for example, would have been absolutely horrific. I mean, yeah, we are very interested in the experience of British people living through the Blitz, for example, yes, and yes. the bombing of London and Liverpool and Southampton close yeah. to us. Yes, but this is, for example, something that Germans are still, until nowadays, not aware at all that I mean, there have been people... Well, I mean, there's a huge um, common consciousness um, in, in German society of this experience of sitting in the, in the bunkers, sitting in the cellars, and the bombs are falling down. This was, of course, traumatic, especially for the children's generation, the war children. But most of the people never think about or try to imagine that it was the same experience in other countries. You know, when the Germans were bombing London, for example, or other um, towns in, in England, that it was exactly the same experience. And there's no, not really an awareness. And um, I think what is also um, very special on this, all this memorizing in Germany, it's um, almost everything, all this memory is focusing on the Holocaust, on the persecution of the Jews, but there's absolutely no awareness of what we were doing, of what crimes we were committing in Eastern Europe, above all, in the Eastern European countries and Russia. And this is something that um, we're really not dealing about uh, with this history. There's no no consciousness until nowadays about that. And of course, one of the so, main architects of that was Heinrich Himmler. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think we should ask some, uh, put this yeah. over to the audience. I'm sure there's going to be hundreds of questions. Um, can we get some microphones down here, please? And I think it would be a good idea to kind of line up the next one so we can move swiftly. So, yes. Okay. Dexter David. Just, just wait for the microphone. Get the microphone down here, please. Put the front, grab one at the front, and then, and then go back. Um, I have two things, but they're both really quick. First thing, um, what do you think the most attractive element to a student... What do you think the most attractive element about the party was to a student in those days? Like, what was the prime thing that led them to it? Um... I think for the young generation in that time, it was very attractive to enter the party or to make career in any... I, I mean, it was not that much the party which was attractive. Um, I think it was more the institutions of the SS, which was growing and growing, and there were lots of different institutions, and the whole um, structure of the SS was so enormously in the later years. And this was... Um, mostly attractive for young academics. There were many of them entering the SS in those years. Um, it was mostly the generation who were not fighting in the First World War because they were still a bit too young, 
but who were very much touched by this experience of having lost everything and this big humiliation of the whole society. It was very much in their mind. And then afterwards, they had this um, common experience of um, not finding jobs. They were well-educated as academics, but many of them didn't find jobs in the, in the Weimar Republic. So for them, it was really a big chance to make career in these new SS institutions, and it was a sort of making a much faster career than it would have been possible for that young people in normal times or in the times before. And well paid also. These jobs were very well paid compared to other jobs. And um, also, just... Can you tell us a tiny okay. bit about um, what happened to Himmler's wife? Sorry, I didn't get... About what happened to Himmler's wife? Ah, yes. well, okay. Not, um, not, didn't last very long. She was... Um, Together with her daughter Gudrun, they were in an internation camp for one and a half year after the war. And um, then they went to Bielefeld, next to a small town in, in Germany. They were staying um, in a quiet place in, in, in Bethel, which was from the church. Um, they were staying there and working there for several years. And later on, they were moving to Munich. and. Marga Himmler, the wife of Heinrich, she was dying in 67. And yes, to then. And Himmler, of course, had a, had a mistress as well, as many of you, I guess, will know. He had, um, she was her, Himmler's personal secretary first for several years. And then she was stopping her work um, because they decided they wanted to have children in secret. And um, he was very decided not to divorce from his wife, but he was um, convinced of this idea of um, that every SS man should be able to, should be allowed to have two wives at once, because one is not enough for him. And it's, of course, it was, it meant the chance to produce more Aryan children. This was the idea of it. So they had two children together, he and his mistress. And I think they're still alive, but um, I'm, I'm not in contact with them. Um, you said that... Um, Sorry, where is it? Uh, <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> um, you said that some of the family don't want to talk about their experience, but who do you think has the responsibility of telling these stories? Obviously, you've gone ahead and you're happy to talk about it, but do you think there's a level of responsibility for the family that remains in order to expose it? And, it, and you know, discuss it at all? Sorry, I didn't understand. It's very low voice. Sorry, can you just say that um, again? I'm hardly can. Just hear talking me. about um, who has the responsibility um, of talking about these things. You said some of the family weren't prepared to talk about it at all. Okay. But do you think there's an element of responsibility as um, members of the family to keep discussing it and sort of highlight the, the reality of it? I mean, I think it's a very special decision to go to the public and talk in front of audience about their own family history. And it's definitely not the way that most of the family's members would choose. Um, I think everyone is, is finding his own way. They are all dealing with the past in any way, and they're all busy since years doing it. But uh, there are many, many different ways of doing it. I don't know if it... Yeah, was no, really an answer to your question. Okay. Uh, right, I, I think it was. I mean, I mean, obviously, you were born long after the 12 years of the Third Reich yeah, was, was sure. over, and it's just a quirk of, mm. of fate that you carry the Himmler name, and yet, obviously, you, you do feel some kind of burden because of it, would you say? Um, yes, but I think it was... I was not only doing it because I felt responsible for this family, and I had the feeling of... I have to do it. It's. I think I was doing it for myself as well, and it really helped me, because um, it feels the more often I'm talking about it, the easier it feels to deal with it. And I mean, when I was younger, I really felt ashamed to tell my name to anybody, and now it's okay. I can say it because I tried my very best to deal with this family history. So it was really helpful for myself. <laughs> How much, if at all, was uh, Heinrich Himmler a friend of Adolf Hitler? Oh, I didn't understand. 
Exactly. How much of a friend, if at all, was Heinrich Himmler to Adolf Hitler? Ah, okay. How much of the, did they actually yeah, know each how, other? Um, well, this is something that um, until recently historians even were supposing that they were not um, in too, too um, narrow contact with each other, that Hitler was always um, seeing Heinrich Himmler as a bit weird because all this Germanic esoteric stuff, it was like that. He didn't take it for serious, Hitler. But nevertheless, um, now it's very clear, and especially it's because of these documents that were found in Israel, of these early letters, it was becoming much clearer that the connection between Hitler and Himmler was very close from the very beginning. And in the 20s, um, Heinrich Himmler was having um, a much more important role in the Nazi party than it was supposed in the, um, until now, until we found these documents. Um, because he was the one who was responsible for organizing the Hitler rallies all over the country. So he was in the position to decide whether one group in one place um, could invite Hitler, could get him for a speech or not. So it was quite a powerful um, position. And on this, in the same time, he was holding um, speeches himself because um, there were not many um, party members in that time before 33 who were able um, to travel around all the time and holding speeches, at, holding these um, party rallies. And Heinrich Himmler was the one who was, as an agricultural, no, you say, he was studying agriculture, mm -hmm. so he was specialized in these items and was very much speaking in front of um, people in the countryside and the small villages. And he was many times, he was traveling together with Hitler, and it seems like they were, you never get to know out of these letters what they were talking about, because he always writes only, we had very nice talks. It was great to talk with him for hours during the train <laughs> journey they were doing together, but he never writes what they were talking about. But it gets very clear that um, they were thinking in a very similar way and that Hitler was trusting very much in Himmler and, and um, he was sure that he was one of his most important men. I mean, he was the second man Right, the next man after Hitler in the last years, from '43 on, when he was Minister of the Interior, no, for these last two years. Yeah, and he remained a, the, you know, one of the most senior Nazis yes. throughout. Yeah. From the moment he takes over command of the mm. SS, I mean, he never loses that. Yeah. Do you know who was next? I have no I idea. Don't. Who's <laughs> next? Several. Yeah, right at the back there. Um, can you tell something about the rather surprising agreement between Heinrich Himmler and Count Bernadotte and also the Danes to evacuate these Scandinavian Jews to Sweden? Um, well, this seems like, this action seems like Heinrich Himmler was trying to solve um, his soul as, as good as possible and when he realized in the end um, um, that it would become very difficult for him to get out of the situation. But this is, I think this is nothing he was doing because he was convinced of him. It was tactic, or it was strategically that he was doing it. Um, and it was um, due to the contacts of um, Felix Kersten, who was who's making the contact to, to the Count Bernadotte, as far as I know and arranged these meetings. They had three or four meetings, I think, together. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, I thought your um, comments in response to the question about the motivation of the, the generation that went into the SS and got on the bandwagon. Um, I, I've worked in um, ex-Soviet countries with the, suppose you might pompously call it, the successor agencies to the KGB. And that academic and business uh, class, I, uh, that, that rings very true with what I've seen in the last 10 years or so. My question is, um, is there any, have you ever come across um, the, or perhaps surviving veterans or the families of armed forces people, particularly the army, who 
try and blame the SS for everything uh, to perhaps gloss over the involvement of the army. You particularly referred to the history in, um, other than the Jewish victims, particularly in Eastern Europe, which I think uh, is certainly a tale, a story which needs to be addressed from the point of view of many nations. Thank you. What was the question? <laughs> Sorry, the, 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 I didn't the, get the, it. The, the question really was, um, everyone always blames the SS, but don't you think the army were culpable as well? Is yeah, it? of course. I mean, that's not what I'm doing. Of course, the, the army was, was responsible in many, um, in many cases of, of killing. They were invo involved in the mass murdering as well. And this is something that um, the consciousness about that was changing in Germany already in the 90s. I think it was in the mid of the 90s where, where there was a big exhibition about the Wehrmacht, about the army, where there have been huge discussions, all the veterans of the army coming there. It's not true. We haven't been killing. We were just soldiers and not murderers. And But since then, it has changed a lot. And there's a huge... Um, consciousness about and the people know very well that they have been involved into the killing. There were a lot of publications and documentations about that. I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, there are huge, were it not for the Wehrmacht commanders, hmm. the war simply couldn't have gone on. I mean, someone like Kesselring, yeah. who was always seen as a good Nazi, you know, good general, smiling Albert and all the rest of it. I mean, he was the one who was religiously keeping the war going in Italy when the SS general in Italy, Carl Wolf was desperately trying to bring about an armistice. Mm. Yes. I think she was next. Huh? Yep. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more. Thank you very Last much. Um, I think it's marvellous that you've come to talk to us today. Thank you very much. Um, you've mentioned about the disparity between children learning about the Holocaust and the Hitler regime in schools but an acceptance and a knowledge of what their family members did. Yes. Given the age of some of these people now who are getting into their late 80s and 90s, just ordinary members of the public in Germany who were in the war or were civilians, as you've spoken of, is there a push now to try to get some of their stories told? Um, to historians like James mentioned the stories that were told because they're getting to an age where they'll die and those stories will be lost forever, mm. either to the members of the public or their families or historians. Well, it seems like um, for some of this, um, this older generation, it seems to be easier to tell something about the past to their grandchildren instead of to, uh, their own children. Um, so sometimes they're really speaking about this in their, late, in their latest years. But nevertheless, the vast majority of them, those who were adults in their, their time or, or youngsters and, and, and active in the Hitler Youth, for example, they usually don't talk about it. So it doesn't really help to ask them because you usually you just get any stories. They tell you any stories, but they don't have really information. There's no basic information in it. So usually the better way is really to go to the archives and ask there if they have any files. And this is what more and more people are doing recently. All the archives in Germany, all the memorials, um, memorial places of the former concentration camps, they realize and they all tell that many, many people are asking there and in order to do research about their ancestors in the recent years. They're holding seminars in order to teach people, to help them how, how they can get along with the files, uh, where they can find the stuff they want. So this is really growing in the last years, more and more. But the speaking inside the family it doesn't really lead to very much because they're usually not, not telling you the things you really want to know. <laughs> there are some wonderful archives in, in, yeah. in Germany. There is. There's a really yeah. one, I mean, the military archives, for example, in Freiburg in the Black <clears throat> Forest, and just down the road is a town called Emmendingen, mm. and there they have a Tagebuch archive, uh, which is a you know, diary archive, and they've got some yeah. absolutely amazing stuff Oh, yeah, in there from this diary archive. Been, it's, yeah, it's really wonderful great. that yeah. has been, you know, from p families mm. that have been donated once people have passed away mm. and so on. So, so it is there. 
but it's just a lot harder. You have to sort of scrape under the stones yes. a lot harder and have to work a lot harder to, to get it. So it isn't completely lost forever. Yeah. It is the human stories that get yes. lost. That's absolutely right. Uh, um, there's just not so many of them as there are over in this country, but people are doing really valuable work to record some of these German veterans of the war. Katrin, that's been really, really oh, enlightening so and fascinating and, and brave of you too. So I'm really, really grateful for you for Thank coming. You. And I think we've all found that absolutely utterly absorbing. Thank you. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> but you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.